This episode is brought to you by Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma. When it's time for an aircraft component inspection, overhaul, repair, or replacement, you need experienced technicians you can trust and friendly service you can count on. Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma, a family-owned business since 1959, delivers just that. Our techs have real-world experience and provide sales, service, and overhaul for piston engine aircraft accessories. We also have limited turbine capabilities such as fuel pumps, starter generators, and prop governors. And we can overhaul propellers ranging from fixed pitch to turbine. Propeller pickup and delivery service is available. And one more thing, mention this podcast to receive 5% off your next sale, service, or overhaul. Visit aircraftaccessoriesofok.com. This week on Hangar Talk, Swift Fuel says they're closer than we thought on unleaded fuel. And there's a spotlight on mental health after a North Carolina accident. Also, two recent mid-airs cause us to reevaluate how we operate in the pattern. On the bright side, Ian, avionics sales are up. As are aircraft deliveries. We'll talk about the gamma numbers. Ian, are you ready to do some Hangar Talk? Let's do it, David. From AOPA, your freedom to fly. This is Hangar Talk. Yeah, 1056, turn right, heading 130, contact final, 132.4. Turn right, sky back. With your hosts, Ian Twombly and David Tulitz. This is Hangar Talk. Welcome to Hangar Talk. I'm Ian Twombly. And I'm David Tulis. I'm, I'm in the field here, Ian, in Driggs, Idaho. So you yeah. might hear some airplanes going back and I forth. I hear that. Yeah, a little, little bit of airplane noise, maybe some wind. Yeah, a little bit of wind. And today's my birthday. And be- birthday. before we introduce our special guest, I'm in the shadows of the Grand Teton in Driggs, Idaho, a mountain that I climbed twice when I was a younger person. Oh, no kidding. How about that? Yeah. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. So tell us about our special guest. Yeah, so actually speaking of mountains, born in the West, born in Alaska really, stole flying. So we're going to talk about that. It's gotten huge everywhere, obviously. Hal Stockman does it in a highly modified kit fox. And you caught up with him at an event a few months ago. But he talks a lot about, and I think we're all curious about, how to do it. So how, what sort of techniques do they use? How do they mod the airplanes? That sort of thing. Yeah. And we're, we're going to let our listeners know, Ian, because we're anticipating a little bit of stall demo at some of our hangouts, one of which is coming up in September in Spokane. So we're going to get the lowdown on how to do it. So if our listeners want to, they'll at least know how. At least an intro to how. Yeah, that's right. So we'll have him have him on a little bit later. First, we want to talk about 100 low lead, about Avgas and getting the lead out of Avgas, which we all know we are working towards, have been with Eagle and tons of other initiatives. We've talked about the Gammy Fuel. We've had on George Raleigh on the show. But we have not yet had on the guys from Swift. They did give an update, though, recently at a congressional hearing at the at the very end of July. We haven't had a chance yet to talk about it on the show. And something that came out of it that was interesting is that Chris Costa, the CEO, said they're they're actually a little closer than maybe I thought they were. Yeah, and Chris Costa did represent all of general aviation at that congressional hearing, and he said he's working. Uh, the industry itself is working full throttle, quote unquote. Um, towards having 100 octane unleaded fuel ready to deploy by the middle of 2023. So that's uh, there's a time limit on that. I like that deadline. Yeah. So he's saying that they think they'll have the fuel ready for all engines by the middle of next year, which we know the Gammy fuel, they, they claim to be ready now for that. 
And then Chris mentions only a one to two year period where they can get the approvals and get it out into the field. But of course, some of this is, they've done some of this distribution already. They, they know how to do this. They're in, for example, in, in California where they can't sell Avgas. That's true. Well, we need, it. we need that Swift Fuels out in California because that's the only game in town at yeah. a couple of the airports. And you know, Swift Fuel, a long time ago, um, Dave Hirschman, uh, editor-at-large, tested that Swift Fuel. And I want to say it might have been an RV3 at the time. Yeah, it was in his RV. Gosh, that was like, feels like it was like a decade ago now. It's been out there a while. And like everybody else says, yeah, works works great. Yeah, absolutely. So that's good news. I mean, I, I hope they can make that uh, deadline. It shows that from a technological standpoint, we're getting really close. And that that's very encouraging. Yeah, it is. And the thing that we want to reiterate to our Hangar Talk listeners, um, folks that have, have listened to us for a pretty good while, is that you know, we're for anything that works for all of general aviation. And the the term that George Brawley introduced me to, that fun, I'll probably mispronounce it, but fungibility, mm-hmm. the, the fact that you can mix the GAMI 100 unleaded with the Swift fuels or with the current Avgas, that's the key piece of the that's puzzle. Really and, and it looks like we're headed that way. And it looks like we are headed towards, say if you're um, an FBO and you have two, you have, you know, different options for different people. Maybe some folks want the GAMI product. Maybe some folks want the Swift. It'd be nice to have that as an option and maybe a little competition. Yeah, that's right. And the other thing that's nice is for a transition, right? You can you can imagine how complicated it would be on, you know, January 1st, let's say, of some year when it's like there's no longer any Avgas. Well, can you throw the new stuff in your tank while you still have Avgas? And the answer is yes, you'll be able to do that. So so that's really good and important. And, you know, a, a while back, I want to say is at least one air venture ago, George Brawley was on the verge of, of getting several hundred more aircraft approved for an STC. And we've been kind of standing by waiting on that for a while. I'm guessing the FAA is going to have a little movement on that by the time we record the next hangar talk. Yeah, I would hope so. David, let's talk about mental health. This is something that um, we have actually touched on on this show before. We had Renee O'Shaughnessy on what? Uh, episode uh, I think 136. One, yeah, 136. And so She's an expert in this area, former airline pilot. She knows and has flown with, I think, people who have had these challenges. A lot of people are talking about this accident. A a young guy in North Carolina, the NTSB had an initial report that didn't say that he committed suicide. But as as Jim Moore's story says, and as I think people know, the interview with the surviving pilot, this is a two-pilot airplane, shows that there were probably some issues there. And regardless, it, it, there's, there's never a wrong time to talk about this issue. The problem being, of course, that so many people, so many pilots, don't get the care they need because of their medical certification. They are reluctant to get the care that they need. I think that's the overall emphasis here is that uh, it's better to speak out and, and try to get the care. I mean, the worst thing that can happen is for you to not tell someone and have this kind of issue and then the families are just left with, you know, trying to pick up the pieces. Yeah, with questions. Yeah. So one of the reasons to talk about it now, obviously, is this accident. The other that maybe I, I think even more consequential is that the federal air surgeon, which is Dr. Susan Northrup, at Oshkosh, AOPA hosted a mental health forum. She was there. She said that the FAA is working to make changes to their certification process They've hired more people who are experts in mental health. They're looking at the various drugs that are on the market today. 
she recognizes the problem, I think, and that's a good start. But man, it's going to take them forever to make these. I mean, it's like, just do it already. Uh, I agree with you on that. And I also want to um, just highlight the fact that Susan Northrup is, is a, a pilot's pilot. I mean, she's she, a pilot, yeah. She is out there flying. And um, I, I like the fact that she's got her. Or you know, feet on the street, so to speak, to get the pulse of the aviation community and to recognize where we need to put some more emphasis. That's exactly right. So definitely go online, check out this story, because there's all sorts of really detailed information here. They talk about surveys that have happened where pilots say they have a mental health problem and they don't seek care. There's There are resources that are in the story. So there's all kinds of things. And I, I do think it's something that as as some of these accidents happen and as that people start to talk about this and as the world generally opens up about mental health and reduces the stigma that hopefully these things will change and, and we'll start to get a little more progressive in the medical certification area. Exactly. I want to add one more thing to that great advice, Ian, is that, you know, folks can call the AOPA Pilot Information Center, and we have a huge resource in Gary Crump, who's the director of the medical certification section for AOPA. And and this is an interesting statistic. He said that nearly a third of the calls from pilots seeking medical certification advice and assistance have involved some aspect of behavioral health. That is something I did not know until I read that story. Yeah, that's interesting. All right. Well, we're going to have to keep on accidents for a few minutes, unfortunately. Again, something that a lot of people are talking about, there have been two midairs recently, which is quite unusual. Both of them completely different circumstances, but of course, both of them in the traffic pattern which we know is the high-risk area for midairs. David, I think Richard McSpadden from the Air Safety Institute put out an initial reactions video. Yeah, you can catch it on YouTube. Yes, lots of interesting info in there. It is. And one of the things that Richard was talking about was a maneuver that a lot of us learned during our private pilot training. And, and, and at least for me, and I'm going to be honest, I sort of kind of let it go a little bit, which is a maneuver he calls, you know, to take one more look before you go belly up to the outside of the landing pattern. So I made a point to do that the other day when video producer Josh Cochran and I were returning from the Eastern Shore of Maryland on a story. And it really what it involves is something that we were taught during our basic training, which is when you're on that downwind and you, you make that base turn, the four you turn final is just simply look to the right or to the left, depending on the pattern that you're in, before you turn the aircraft and go belly up of the aircraft to the outside area, which would block people coming in. And so in a high-wing aircraft, it's a little bit different maneuver. In the low-wing aircraft, you'd actually want to turn right if you're in a left downwind, for instance, and then turn left if you're in a high wing. Yeah, to be able to see. Yeah, yeah. and we chatted with Colin Stagnito a minute ago to try to get a little clarity on that, too. And he said that he's always looking left and looking right in the last part of the pattern as well. So that's something that we just all need to refresh ourselves with. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I think the pattern, especially, we can get a little complacent sometimes with seeing a void. It's a big sky out there. But uh, the pattern, especially, I, I feel like I always fly it defensively. And part of this comes from flying at Frederick for so long, where there's intersecting runways. Before the tower, there were gliders, there's jets, there's helicopters, there's flight school traffic. And so it was always a little bit chaotic. And it and I just remember getting in the mindset of one day, it's just sort of clicked. It's like, you sort of have to fly like you drive in the pattern and just expect people to do something you don't expect and to expect airplanes where you wouldn't necessarily expect them. Like, for example, coming on straight in on final without making radio calls. 
Ian, you just said something that really touches a nerve with me. That is so astute. I ride a motorcycle and, and every intersection, every driveway, every around every turn, I, I figure that someone is going to not look and see me. Mm-hmm. So exactly. I, drive, ex, I drive extremely, or I should say I ride extremely defensively. And so maybe having that attitude uh, when we're in the pattern yeah. needs to be the way to go. Just yeah. be on your toes. You know, the thing that's so weird about these accidents is, Ian, is that we have ADSB in a lot of aircraft, and especially if you're close to the home base, you know. But the flip side of that is that we're usually looking outside the aircraft and not, and we shouldn't be here, and we shouldn't be looking on the box. Yeah. But um, even in the Watsonville crash, it was, interestingly, they both pilots were talking about it. Yeah. They knew they were aware of each other, and um, yeah, yeah. For some reason, uh, it just seems like one just ran down the other, which is just terribly unfortunate. I think in in Las Vegas, maybe one pilot set up for the wrong runway, which I I've done. You know, I think most of us have had challenges like that in the past. I didn't set up for the wrong runway; I set up for the taxiway because the sun was in my eyes, and so you learn to to queue in the ILS later, right? And so that you know that you're set up. Yeah, yeah that's a great idea. That's a good, a real good backup, uh, even for a VFR pilot in, in the daytime. The other thing to keep in mind is if you're working from a field with parallel ops, like I learned to fly at Peachtree to Cab in Atlanta, and it had two parallel runways, you have to really be on your toes. And it is easy for a pilot to get confused. It's also easy for the, sometimes for the tower to get confused with what they've given you. Yeah, absolutely. And we'll be right back. So let's talk about some better news. Let's talk about avionics sales. And they are going gangbusters. It's great news out of AEA, the Aircraft Electronics Association. Avionics sales are up for the eighth consecutive quarter. I guess another way to say that is second year. And so despite the supply chain, it seems like things are still going well. Yeah, and the interesting thing about that is not just the fact that from this for this period, from April to June, that it climbed 20%, which is... A good amount, but what, when you look a little bit deeper into it, we're noticing that a lot of the avionics are being installed by the OEMs, the manufacturers. And and you and I were talking, and that climbed about 36.5%. And you and I were talking about this right before the show. Uh, we wonder how that came about. I wonder if the avionics manufacturers are are holding back more for the manufacturers than they are for, for you and I when we want to upgrade our Cessnas. Right. So yeah, exactly. So when the chip comes into Garmin, what is the priority there? It's like, who makes that business decision? Is it is it just when it was ordered? Or is it like, oh, well, we've got these partnerships with Cessna and Diamond and everybody else. And man, they better go to G1000 today. It is. It's, it's interesting. I would love to know how they make those decisions because the retrofit market was actually down a percent and a half from 21 to 22, but the, they call it forward fit, the OEMs, they were up almost 36%. That's huge. It's amazing. So it does make you wonder if they're being sandbagged for you know new aircraft models or or if if the, if the Dave and Ian show you know if we want one you know new Garmin exactly. uh, Navigator uh, or another bit of avionics if, if we're able to get it or is it or because another company is you know wants thirty of them mm-hmm. you know can they get all thirty first Yeah Yeah Right So that ties in by the way really well with of course the gamma numbers and so we can actually look at how many airplanes are being shipped around the world. The second quarter report just came out and man, it is, it's good news all over. Yeah, it is. Now, I was going to say just uh, rounding off, uh, Ian, just in general, it looks like the uh, shipments are up about 10% across the board between P1 
pistons uh, and, and tur turbine aircraft. And it's pretty good news, I think, overall. It still looks like we have a nice jump in the training market that's still continuing. Helicopters seem to have tapered off a little bit. That's the one thing you and I were both concerned about. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Let's look real high level. We'd like to, you know, if you've been a longtime listener, you know that, yeah, okay, usually you're going to look year to year, right? So we would look second quarter 22 to second quarter 21. But of course, with the pandemic and people coming back to work and supply chain and all that, you're a little bit like, mm, maybe that number skewed. So, so we like to look at, tw at 19 actually mm -hmm, mm -hmm. as well. So looking at 22, I think total pistons was what? 371. Affirmative 371, which includes 171 in just this last quarter. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, right. So, and then you're looking at 21, there were 343. So we're up from last year. And then when you look back to 19, 325. So we are now at the point where we've surpassed even 2019 numbers. So that, that's great news. That is good news, Ian. I like hearing all that. And where do we go from here? That would be the next question. Do we want to look at, do we want to look at jets? Because there seems to be a lot of interest in that as well. Yeah. So give us the, so what, what do you got for the 22 numbers on jets? First, I need to correct myself. The total piston aircrafts were 371. I think I said 171. I don't know if I made a mistake or, or not. I'm out here and there's a lot going on in the background. <laughs> but looking at looking at business jets, there were that's what it was, 171 business jets. That's where I got confused. So 171 business jets in the quarter versus total piston aircraft 371 yeah so that's uh that's interesting it is interestingly business jets are down and i think this is especially where we can point to supply chain challenges because we know for example that the back and and well and labor force as well because we know the backlog at cessna for example is huge 2019 there were actually 192 business jets delivered. So that's that's down relatively significantly, even though, I, like I said, I think the backlog is pretty big. Did we say that um, last year is 151 yeah. for this yep. quarter? Yeah, yep, that's right. So up from last year, that's good, but down from 19. I think they'd like to build them faster. Just really quickly touching on helicopters, you mentioned they're down. Yeah, down to 206 this quarter. And in 2021, it was 214. And then going way back to 2019, you know, which is pre-pandemic, 244. So, Ian, I'm looking at a downward trend here. Yeah, yeah, they're still suffering a little bit, which does not surprise me, unfortunately. Some winners and losers. What you got? What, who do you who do you like? Who's who's your who made it big in 22? Well, I'll tell you what. I'm looking at the numbers from Textron, Ian, and uh, I'm, I'm particularly looking at Textron as a whole, including the jets and the pistons. They're at 144 deliveries for quarter two. Now, what about if you break that down into just say, look at, at the Skyhawks? They delivered 42 Skyhawks during this quarter. The same year, last quarter, only 20 Skyhawks. So they've doubled the deliveries in this quarter versus last quarter. But I did, I did not go all the way back to look at 2021 or 2019, but I think you might have. Yeah, let me see. So just real quickly, Skyhawks in 21, second quarter 47. And in 2019, second quarter, 24. 
So last year was a big year. Interesting. Yeah. It looks like Piper is on a similar path with their training aircraft. If you combine the Archer 3 and the T-100i, you're looking at 30 aircraft that the folks at Piper have put out the door during this quarter. And that's not too far off from the first quarter, which was 11 Piper 100Is and 22 of the, the Archers. So that's about, that's 33. So it's very similar to that. But what about, I didn't go back enough to look at last year because I'm here remotely today. Can you help me out on that? How did they do, how did Piper do in, in 21 and in 2019? Yeah, so in 21, Piper delivered, in the second quarter, between the pilot and the Archer, 26 airplanes. And then in 19, it was, well, of course, they didn't have the Piper 100, but they had the Warrior. But they did 42 Archers in the second quarter of 19. So they're still trying to play catch up. Yeah. Interesting. You know, Cirrus is usually the leader of the pack. When we talk about a lot of these units, we're looking at 132 total units. That's spread out between the SR-20, the 22, the SR-22T, and the SF-50 Vision Jet. So that's 132 Cirrus airplanes. You know, if you look at that combined uh, with their first quarter numbers, their first quarter numbers were, man, it was a little bit more than half of that. 79 total units in the first quarter of this year. That's up significantly from quarter to quarter. I wonder if the supply chain loosened up a little bit for them in the the latter half of this first part of uh, the first half of the year. You know what? You would think so. But it's funny, looking back at the other reports at 21 and 19, it must be it's so cold in Duluth, they can't build or something. It's like they shut (laughs) down. In in January? Yeah, Yeah, that's right. Because... It's their trend. So 77 in 21, 77 out the door in the first quarter versus 118 in the second. And in 19, 80 out the first quarter and 123 the second. So something about the way people buy Cirri that's uh, just a little different there. That is really interesting. We should ha- we should have someone from Cirrus on the show to, to try to explain that. Yeah, why and, they do that. And you might be right that in the middle of the winter, it, the conditions might be cold. <laughs> the days are short. I have no idea. Yeah, right. They can't do the flight test right, when it comes out. Right. Yeah. yeah, who knows? That is pretty wild. Or nobody wants to go pick up their airplane. Maybe that's it. Yeah. All right, David. One more. I'm going to blow your mind, and it's going to and it's going to transition us to talking to Hal because I know he flies a Kit Fox, but we talk about Stoll and backcountry and how big that is these days. You're in Driggs. Talk about you know kind of the the epicenter of backcountry out there in Idaho. Cub Crafters, right? Yeah. Cub Crafters is is we've always loved their designs. They're doing well. So back in 2019, they put out three airplanes in the in the second quarter, right? Because sort of a boutique manufacturer made sense. There wasn't much spotlight on them back then, right? Yeah. The onesies and twosies. Yeah, they picked up the pace in 21. They put out 13 in the second quarter. Uh huh. This year, 22. 22 aircraft in the second quarter for Cup Crafters and 12 in the first quarter. Yeah. So they are going, I think, as fast as they, they're pedaling as fast as they can out there. So good news from them. And don't forget, a couple of years ago, they introduced the NX Cub with the nose wheel. And that is pretty inviting to backcountry pilots who might not be tailwheel proficient. Yeah, that's true. But that NX Cub is, is driving a lot of those units, really. I'm looking at eight yeah. units between the X Cub and the NX Cub. That's interesting to me. Yeah, that is interesting. So David, like I said, perfect perfect segue to talk to Hal about what Stoll is, how to get into it, and even if you don't want to compete, 
maybe some of these techniques could help you in your everyday flying. So here we are at the Mayday Stall event in uh, Wayne, Nebraska. And actually it's the Mayday Stall Drag event. And we'll find out a little bit more about that in just a second. We've got Hal Stockman here. Hal, where are you from? Elko, Nevada. And what are you sitting in right now? What type of aircraft is this? This is a Rans S7S. Tell me a little bit about the Rans S7S aircraft that you have chiseled down to be as light as possible. Well, I, I build it as a to do competitions with for stole drag and traditional stole. And uh, I fight with weight instead of uh, horsepower. So I tried to build it as light as possible. And the when I build it, you pull a part out of the box. If it didn't need that part to fly, it didn't go on. So there were four big boxes of parts, and it is 100 pounds lighter than my previous S7 that had all the parts on it. So, Hal, when you're taking the parts off, you're trading weight for performance a little bit here for the stall and the drag part. Right? Right, yeah. Any pound that you don't have on the airplane is a pound that you don't have to get moving, get stopped, and take off with. Tell me a little bit about your commute from Nevada to here in the breadbasket of the United States. Yeah, I left, uh, left Nevada and it was, I was very fortunate. I had mostly tailwinds coming over. I flew 600 miles into Torrington, Wyoming, and then I picked up another guy and we flew another 400 miles here into Wayne. What's your average ground speed or, or uh, what's your my, average? My true airspeed true is airspeed. between 90 and 95 as a rule in and my cruise. We're talking about miles per hour. Miles per hour. Yeah, knots are just uh, not big enough or they're too big, so they're not a big enough number. Understood, yeah. understood. And one interesting thing about this airplane, we're going to go into a couple more details, but tell me a little bit about the adjustable propeller, which is something I have not seen on this type of aircraft. Well, it, it is a kind of an experimental thing that allows me to adjust the pitch of the propeller from cruise to reverse manually and there's no interconnection between the engine and the propeller so I'm the one that's the interconnection. And it's like a handle you've got in the cockpit. Yes, yeah, it's a slave a master cylinder that runs a slave cylinder that turns the pitch of the blade like a hydraulic clutch on a pickup. Okay, and the manufacturer's name, if you got it, Duke. Offhand. And yeah. and I know and you're out of they're out of France. And you were wrestling with some of the some of the the quirks of this system. You're still it, working it out, right? Yes, uh, we haven't got it perfected yet, but we're getting closer. I don't have complete reverse yet, but I am making some reverse thrust. Okay, so how did you get started in stall? and then stall drag? Well, the stall's been around a long time and, and uh, these airplanes are just very good at that to begin with. I have only have a, I'm at over a mile high at my house and I have a 700 foot strip that 
so I have to have a very good performing airplane to get on and off of it. And you practice spot landing every time you come home because if you miss it by a few hundred feet, you've missed it, you know. <laughs> Indeed, that gives you good practice for right. an actual competition. Right, right. So we were talking a little bit about weight savings on different aircrafts, and I walked down the line here at the Mayday Stall Drag, and I saw nose wheels, and I saw tail wheels, and I'm gonna say yours is a no-wheel setup here. Tell me about the, the tail skid. Well, when I compete, I put a skid on it for, uh, I have a lot of things, when I, when I'm loaded, my, running my airplane normally, I've got the back seat in, I've got a baggage compartment in, so I've got a lot of weight in the airplane, but when I compete, I take all that out. Sure. I have a spare tank, all the stuff comes out of the airplane, and it makes it a little bit forwards, it's on the front of CG. Okay. So to get the CG back, the tail wheel weighs six pounds, the skid weighs 12, so I put six pounds on the tail, and then it also lowers the tail, the height of the tail wheel, because the skid is at the, at the bottom of the spring. So that gives me more angle of attack before the tail hits. So when your tail hits, you lose your elevator, so you can't pull your tail down to get high angle of attack to take off good in a stole competition the more angle of attack you've got to a point will help you. So this is the balance. It gives me good elevator when I'm coming in and slow because it moves my CG back a little bit yep. and gives me the extra angle of attack. Now I noticed that this airplane can be fitted with, with leading edge cuffs or not. Yeah, yeah. I have <coughs> leading edge slats that I put on it for traditional stole competition so I can fly slower. But with stole drag, I need the speed on the right away, and I don't need, I'm not concentrating on being as slow as I can be when I land. So the, the slats on the front end of the wing help in a traditional stole competition, but not as much in stole drag. Right. Well, they, and they are draggier, so they take, they cut my cruise speed when I'm traveling. So if I don't need them where I'm going, there's no need to have them on. And then I need I don't need any extra drag because I want to go down the course as fast as possible. Do you carry them with you inside the cargo pod or leave them at home? I leave them at home. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, they're four feet long, so I don't have any place to put Okay. You and I were talking yesterday a little bit about getting involved in install and install drag. And one of the things you said really was appealing to me is that you said you tell some of your buddies who are interested in aviation not to get that brand new pickup truck and, and, and to save their money instead if they want to do some flying. Tell me a little bit about that. Well, uh, the, the experimental light sport airplanes can be purchased. You can purchase a kit and build a new one, or you can purchase one already built, but you can get a very nice flying airplane for the price of a new pickup. So I tell my buddies, don't buy a new pickup, buy an airplane, fly it for 10 years and sell it for what you paid for it. And keep and you won't drive your pickup near as much because you got an airplane to fly. 
And the other thing is that that pickup is going to depreciate a heck of a lot more than an airplane. Right. And so financially. Just keep driving the old one. Yeah. Right. And financially, it might make more sense to just get the airplane and have an older if, pickup. Yeah. If you if you want to fly, it's not out of reach to the working man. Now, listen, um, over here at the competition, there are some uh, carbon cubs. Or we're talking about $300,000 airplanes. Uh, we have the Rands here where you see some kit foxes. Can someone get involved for about thirty or 40000 bucks, or even less? Yeah, you can buy a good flying light sport airplane depending if you want to put a two-cycle on it, if it's got a two-cycle engine on it, which burn a lot of fuel, and but for, for it'll get you in the air for probably $15,000. And then you can go clear on up to the carbon cubs so there's a range in there and you can spend as much money as you want but there's no reason a working man can't be in aviation because of the money because it's not that expensive gotcha tell me a little bit about the stole drag competition that we're likely to see here if the wind uh, dies down a little bit. And I'm going to apologize to folks listening in that it is a little bit windy right here on the flight line. But what are we, what are the classes likely to be and how is it divided up? The stole drag is divided up into eight classes of the gold, silver, and bronze. And those classes are determined by your qualifying times. So the top eight qualifiers are in the gold class, the, the center eight qualifiers are in the silver class, and then the bronze class is the last eight. So when you go out and qualify on the course, mm -hmm. you will they will time you and then you will be ranked, and it's a double elimination for the finals. Okay. So you, ha you get to lose twice. Okay. And it's like any other racing double elimination the first round, the fastest runs against the slowest. Okay. And you can climb your way up the bracket. And so in theory, the slowest guy can still win if he can manage to win every time after that. In their, in their class. In their so class. eight competitors per class, three classes, 24 competitors. Right. And uh, the gold class is actually vying for a bit of prize money. Well, it, they pay down 16 places. So the gold and the silver okay. will all get a cut of the purse. And the purse here in, at uh, May Day this year is $10,000. So the number one is going to get 2,800 of that, 28%. And the percentages are fixed, and we never know what the purse is going to be, but we know what the percentages are. So some stole drag events, Reno had a $30,000 purse. That's pretty stout. Yeah. 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 And that's not too far from your home. Are you going to be there this, right. uh, this yes, fall? Yes, I will be at Reno okay. this, this Good. fall. So now so. you were telling me a little bit about some of the strategy yesterday when we were chatting. And we're talking about, you know, we're in tailwind airplanes for the most part. We've got a choice sometimes between a, a tailwind and a headwind, depending on the direction we're going. How do you even deal with that? Well, you have to deal with the wind no matter what. But the, the stole drag course is you're racing both directions. So one way you'll be taking off probably with the wind or it's a direct cross it, it's possible it's a direct crosswind both ways which we had yesterday with, during practice yes. and a little bit this morning yes so if the wind is right down the runway one way you're taking off into the wind the other way you're taking off out of the wind so you're landing into the wind and taking off 
and landing with a tailwind. So the it's a big difference that you have to accommodate back to back. And also you are running wide open as fast as you can go. And now you're trying to stop and land. So there's a lot of energy management, pilot skill. It's a lot that you don't do every day, but you learn what your airplane can do. So it will make you a much better pilot to do it. Those are key words of wisdom right there. One other thing you were telling me about some of the strategy involved is that you are, uh, in fact, you were relating this to taking off from your home field where you're facing the opposite direction and and going full power. Tell me a little bit about that technique and, and how it alarmed your neighbor. <laughs> yeah, uh, the stole drag, when you, when you go down, you race down and you have to land and stop, come to a complete stop. Now we're racing back. So it's a full power turnaround back to the the start line is now the finish line. So you cannot practice stole drag at your, your regular airport. They're not gonna let you fly back and forth 10 feet off the ground up and down the runway. So when I come in to, to my airport at, at home to practice where to, how to get stopped, I come in full power to the threshold, then I cut it and try to land as quick as possible. And then I could see the lights are 200 feet apart. So now I know how far down the runway I went before I got stopped. So that gives me a clue on the track where I need to pull power. Then when I go to take off, which I do at home or at the airport, I pull out on the runway and I point the wrong way. I point away from the way I want to go. And then I give it full power, turn around and take off. Because that gives so, you that same technique. That gives me the, the same practice. technique on the that gives me a practice run of how to do that. For the drag part of the stall yeah. drag. And my little 700 foot strip at home is right in front my neighbor's kitchen window. And the first time I practiced it, she said she heard the airplane rev up and she just looked up and I'm going the wrong direction and there's nowhere to go. I mean, I'm at the end of 700 feet. Yeah. So then she said, I turned around and, and left and she couldn't figure out why I was doing that. That's pretty funny. <laughs> I like it though. So now um, over here during the competition, when we're going side by side, it really and truly is a drag race. How much faith do you have to have in your fellow competitor who's the next lane over, literally a, a wing's length away? Yeah, uh, our, our track is 150 feet wide and you have a 75 foot lane and you are not allowed to get your wing tip into the other, the, the other lane and you're not allowed to get the wheel out. Uh, you can hang your wing over the outside of the lane. So you tend to hug the outside, but with the wind conditions and what have you, but there's a lot of training goes in and, the, and they are vetted very well to uh, make sure that you can hold your lane. So they don't let people that can't hold their lane do the stole drag. So I cover a little bit of NASCAR in my off time and they're known for trading a little paint on the, on the race course, but you're not looking to trade paint no, in the we, stole drag. No, we're not looking to trade any paint. No, it, it's bad enough on the turnarounds, we can have wake turbulence. You know, you can be your weight can be going into the other lane. So you, those are things you have to compensate for and think about depending on whether you're ahead. The guy that's ahead may be hitting the wake turbulence of the guy that's behind him if it's a crosswind, 
he may be just lifting off and that wake turbulence is blowing into his lane and now it's very noticeable. Yeah, and it could be a problematic. It's just another something you have to keep in mind. Right. right. Um, as if you were at a busy airport and you're talking about wake turbulence and vortices from you know bigger aircraft or helicopters. I mean, it's probably something that's not top of mind to a lot of pilots, but it probably should be. Yeah, right. When you're here on the race course and you're you're flying down you're not looking at the competitor to your left or to your right. You're looking, what are you looking at? Uh, you're looking at the, the cones are 100 feet apart. We have a center line, a flag at the center point. And what we're, what I look for is where do I pull the power to start slowing down so I can land at the other end. And so if I've got a headwind, I can go further under full power. If I've got a tailwind, I'm going to have to pull the power sooner. And that is all just practice and knowing your airplane and uh, doing it. Speaking of doing it, you were out here last year. How'd you do last year? I did all right. I can't. I can't remember exactly where I placed in the in the rankings last year. And last year was more. We're evolving. We just had one, two, three. I think I was fourth or fifth. I know you were in the top five. I believe I heard that from several competitors who were very quick to compliment you on your piloting skills. I see. Well, the airplane, I say, is much more capable than the pilot. And when the pilot can get in sync with the airplane, it will do very well. Tell me a little bit about the competitors. It seems like y'all are competitors when you're flying, but when you're on the ground, it's, there's, there's a lot of camaraderie. Folks yeah. were helping you walk the airplane back yesterday during a high wind situation. Yeah, the wind was so high when we got done yesterday that the airplane wanted to fly on its own. And last year when we were in a, uh, a briefing on the ramp, uh, a big gust uh, caught my airplane and it, it tried to fly away by itself. And you had so, some folks helping you yeah, out with that. Yeah, we grabbed it and pulled it back down. And <laughs> that's the one. That's the other. The flip side of having a very light aircraft right. that you've managed the ounces and the pounds for so carefully. Yeah, I have a lot of square footage for the weight, so it flies very easily. Gotcha. How can we get more young people involved in aviation? Do you think this is something that would appeal to young people? Yeah, I think it would appeal to young people because it's a lot of uh, eye-to-hand coordination and uh, you can really stand out if you're good, have good eye, like at any other sport. If you can do it very well, your, your skill level, you look at these airplanes and there's huge differences in the airplanes, but the pilot skill is a lot to do with how well they actually do. We have $30,000 airplanes beating $400,000 airplanes. So, money is not the whole key there's a lot of skill involved and the low and slow flying is very enjoyable you can go out and cruise around and and smell the hay fields and see the cows and it's a whole different kind of flying than just going up high and going somewhere so it's a whole different side of aviation that maybe hasn't been tapped into that would be much more appealing than just going up and going somewhere. Yeah, well, you know what comes to my mind, uh, how is that back during my dad's time in aviation, 
he flew low and slow in the little air coop and landed at different fields. I think we got away from that a little bit in the 70s and 80s and 90s with the go-fast airplanes. And now maybe there's a return to the low and slow. Like you said, smell the hay bales, the smoke coming from chimneys, that kind of thing. Right, yeah. Yeah, you can land in the hay field, you know. <laughs> I like it. That sounds good. Well, uh, maybe people, the stole drag is a little confusing and maybe we need to elaborate on what the what the course, how it's laid out okay. and exactly how it's done. The course is 2,000 feet long and it's be generally between a runway and a taxiway or we have always raced on the grass. So we move either beside the runway and put up a course or we go between the runway and the taxiway and put up a course. And it's 2,000 feet long with 1,000 foot of runoff. So you're landing past the line, on or past the line, and then when you stop, that's when, you're, when whoever stops first wins. So you flag off the two airplanes, they race down, land on or past the line, stop, now turn around and the start line is the finish line. You land on or past the line and whoever stops first wins. So you're running full bore, slowing down as fast as you can, stopping as fast as you can, turning around as fast as you can, and doing it all over again with whatever wind you have to deal with and staying in your lane. So it's a not something that is you're using all the skills that you're trained to do when you take your pilot's license, but you don't use those skills on a daily basis. So it'll make you a much better pilot. I kind of make a uh, joke. I want a stabilized approach, a minimum of three feet off the ground. I'll go a little lower, but I want to be stable. I don't need to be stable five miles out. As long as it's three feet above the ground, I'm stabilized, I'm ready. That's some precision <laughs> flying, Hal. I appreciate you explaining that to you. Real quick question though, left turns or right turns when you're when you're on the ground turning around? Or does uh, it depend? The airplane likes to turn left better because of the torque. Okay. But if the wind is against you, it, it might be hard to stay in your lane. So you might have to hug the other way and turn right. But to, does does each pilot make that decision on their own? Yes. Okay. Yeah. That's okay. all they, all there all that the uh, rules say is stay in your lane. Okay. So and, you can turn around any way you want. And full stop, we're not talking about a California stop, which is no, like a stop and go. We're talking the, full the, stop. The, the tailwheel airplanes have to be tail down. It has to be three points. The nose wheel airplanes, there's no ever a question, but the tailwheel airplanes, I can stop with my tail in the air. But now the, it's hard for the officials to know that it stopped because the tail's in the air. So several years ago, we made it so we were stopped with the tail down. So they're looking for the tail down. It's all on video, so if there's a question when it's done, they go through the video and see the finish line and uh, are videoed to see if you landed ahead of the line, if it's a question, and then the stop is videoed, and it's all timed, so it goes back to the video. Gotcha. I know that you have a social media presence that you were just recently made aware of yourself. Tell us where. Tell us how people can find you, and where will you be next? Uh, well, the my buddies all have cameras and social media, and 
I'm old, so I don't, I don't run the high-tech stuff. I don't run fuel injection, turbochargers. I don't mess with social media. I kind of text a little bit, but my buddies have made a Facebook page. I think they call it the Hal Stockman Experience. So they post all the stuff on that, and uh, I never had seen it even until uh, yesterday, I believe. <laughs> So cool. And then when you're not racing, and I know you told me you're retired, but you, when you are working on these Rotax engines also, yes, what's I, the name of your engine rebuilding well, endeavor? I have the Zipper Big Bore kits, so I have modifications for 900 series Rotax engines. I just kind of fell into it. I bought my first Rotax in 99, and there was nobody to work on it, and I started so I fixed it myself. I've been a mechanic all my life. And uh, people ask me, well, who works on your Rotax? I said, well, I do. And they said, well, you work on mine. I said, sure. So then, oh, 10, 12 years ago, I'm at high elevation. I need more power. So I've hot rodded everything I've had all my life. <laughs> so I thought, well, maybe I ought to do something about the Rotax stuff. So I started hand building big bore cylinders and what have you and they worked really well so now I have them manufactured so I have cams, manifolds, cylinders, I update and what have you so I have a whole menu of things for a Rotax if you want it. And you got a phone number or a website uh, or something yes, like that? Yes, uh, zipperbigbore.com is you a go. website. Okay. And I have a friend that he likes a computer he's kind of my uh, sales guy that if you if you go on the website you can get a hold of him or you can call me and I'll always answer the phone if I'm where the phone works that's 775-934-5714 so that'll always get me good and, and otherwise zipperbigbore.com and folks can also find you uh, during May Day stall drag coverage and other stole events yeah i'm retired so now i can fly this little airplane around so i try to hit the traditional stole and the stole drag i believe i've been to every stole drag event that was ever done we started doing it at the high sierra in 2015 and then in 19 we went to the reno air races and then it's kind of branched out from there so we're doing events around we were at Copper State in February in Phoenix. So if you look for stole and stole drag events, uh, there's a good chance you might find me there. Thanks, Hal Stockman. We appreciate it. Good luck in the rest of the May Day stole drag event competition. Thanks for spending time with us. All right. So, David, the fact that he modifies his airplane from competition to competition, I mean, that's, that's amazing. I, I have to admit, my, my impression of these events is it's sort of like, you know, backslapping buddies who just, you know, they like, oh, let's go out and have a good time. But it's like, clearly people are taking this seriously and really thinking about how to get optimum performance out of their airplanes. 
They are. And in Hal's case, you know, there's these leading edge slats that he doesn't take on if it's a stall and drag competition versus just a short takeoff and landing. And also his airplane is really interesting to me, Ian, because it's got like this skid plate on it. It doesn't even have a tail wheel. Hmm. It's interesting. Now, his airplane is also so light that it almost gets blown away sometimes. In fact, he had several people helping hold that aircraft down during a recent competition. And they do help each other out. So that's really a key thing, too. It is a bit of camaraderie. Yeah, good. All right. Well, David, I know you got to get back to work. So that's all the time I think we have. And uh, thanks for listening. I'm Ian Twombly. Our editor is Austin Hansen. And I'm David Tulis. Don't forget, you can find us at aopa.org slash hangar talk and on YouTube and wherever you get your podcasts. All right. We'll see you next time. See you next time, Ian. Hangar Talk from AOPA. Your freedom to fly.